And um, so we're going through, we're continuing through the book of Luke, Dr. Luke, and we'll be in uh, chapter 14, uh, verse uh, 25, we'll be starting. And um, it's kind of interesting, sometimes you get, um, you, you look at the individual verses, and if you kind of back up, you can see an overview. And we had, where we left off last week, um, was Jesus, he was in, uh, invited to a dinner party of a... The, uh, Sadducees' home there, or a Pharisees' home, and and um, you know the, they start talking about the best position and all this, and then he gets into this wedding feast, and you know uses this illustration of this wedding feast of this well-off man throwing a wedding feast, and all the wedding guests start to make excuses why they can't come, and we see the heart of God and says, hey. Bring in who, whoever. Go out in the streets, look for whoever. Look for those who wouldn't normally be allowed to come in the line. Uh, you know, those who are blind and lame and the sick and, and the poor and bring them in. And even then, at a point, they come and they say, hey, the house isn't full. And he goes, go out and compel them. Find them in the, you know, the hedges and the alleyways or wherever you can find people and bring them in. And so we see this invitation that's gone out to whoever, whoever's willing and for those who aren't willing, it says they won't even come in at all. But whoever is willing to come, he invites in and invites into a relationship with God. And now he kind of transitions from the whosoever and having a relationship with me in salvation into discipleship, what it means to be a disciple. And we'll see him, he's, he's leading, there. he's out, and there's this crowd following him, this great multitude, and he turns to them, and, and that's where we'll begin this morning. But it's also important to go, okay, so you kind of look at the scriptures around it, but overall, Jesus is in his last six months of his ministry headed to the cross. That is the time. That is what's going on. And, and if you would, the scene and, and what he knows where he's heading and where he's going and the end that's coming. And, um, you know, so what's important? And, and you slow down, you look at that, and that scene, that picture is important to see the heart of Christ and what's, what's you know, pressing upon him in that sense. And I don't know if you guys have ever watched a movie or a TV series, you know, you're like, the, you know, I was watching one where they're building the Titanic. You know, and they're all excited about and all that, but they don't know what's coming. You know, and so you can kind of see that with the disciples, what's coming and, and what's important and, and what's, you know, going on, what's the scene. And then at the same time, what is going on in our time, in our scene, in this place, in this time? And, and what is important? What's of value? And it, it's kind of a different place where we're at. If, if we can talk, uh, you talk to... Um, people my age who were believers who were raised in the church in the 80s and you know there was many movies that scared you that the rapture was going to come you know and you want to hold I want to hold off I want to learn how to drive a car I want to get married you know I was worried you know I'm going to you know get to heaven I'll be you know I will not have kids I mean all these things you know you had this fear of the return but it was definitely a clear theme and and there was some biblical verses they backed those things on and if you look at the landscape of the last say, 100 years, the technology, the things that have changed that make many of these things possible, the Jewish nation re-entering the land. Um, I mean, Matthew 24, 34 says, hey, a generation will not pass from these things. And it's kind of a double-sided prophecy is the thought that, hey, there isn't going to be a generation that's not going to pass to see the fall of Israel, which is talked about in Matthew chapter 4, the beginning of it, and 
end times prophecy that a generation will not pass when you say Jerusalem in the land and it's rebuilt and he returns. And so there was many that thought that and said, okay, a generation biblically is 40 years. So they re-entered the land in 1948 and in 1988, we're gone. And a lot of you younger ones are happy that didn't happen because you wouldn't be here at all. But, you know, so there's the thought of, you know, what was going to happen. And, and not to say this scripture is that this scripture is that, oh, 100% correct that a generation will not pass before he returns. But if that's the case, and instead of getting into a theological debate on how many years that exactly is, 1948 was 71 years ago. If you're just talking people that saw it that aren't here anymore, that means pretty soon. If there's, you know, and I don't have a problem uh, stating that and not having a, a 100% clear, you know, translation saying, yes, this scripture meant exactly this, because the Bible again and again and again and again in the New Testament says, be ready for his return. More than any, almost any other subject, it says, I am coming again, be ready. And we can see example after example, example of being ready. And so, you know, if you're ready for zombie apocalypse or whatever, repent and pull out. We have a manual for you, how to be ready for the rapture. We have them right there in the back. If you do not have one, Pedro is passing them out. Okay, so you have a manual on how to be ready for the return of Christ. And you can, you know, stop watching the TV show, building your bunker, and prepare as God would have us, biblically prepare. But it's something to think about in our lives, you know. Um, you, you start to think about, okay, what retirement program you have. Well, what if we're not here in 10 years? It's very possible. Makes you rethink things, you know. Am I going to die of natural causes or I'm just going to, poof, be gone? And so it kind of slows down. And, and even just with that thought of what time we're in, where does God have us? What generation? We're in a unique time compared to the rest of the world. This last, since 1948, the technology in these things. And be aware of that. And so we see this invitation that was given last week to whosoever. We see uh, the brought up of discipleship, and we're going to be looking at kind of the heart focus of discipleship, the cost of discipleship, and the calling of discipleship. And then next week, as we continue on, we're going to look at the lost, and not just the lost, but also the lost son, which is important. And so in verse 25, Luke 14, verse 25, it says, Now a great multitude went with him, and he was turned, and he turned, and he said to them. So he turns around to this great multitude after they left the wedding feast, after it was the whosoever, everybody could come in. The invitation goes out, but then he goes, hey, there's something else here. There's more than an invitation. And so in verse 26, it says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, Brother and sister, yes, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, when you guys read that, that's like, okay, huh? I mean, Jesus' love and truth and hate, what? i got to hate my family to come. And, and so there's that first, this kind of shock when you read that, right? You hit the scripture, you go, huh? Does it, the Greek must be failing us on this, right? It's not really hate. Maybe, you know, not care about us. No, the word is hate. It doesn't back up from it. And he doesn't even take it just to your family. He says your own life. All the way through. And at first, it's kind of like, wow. But it's the heart. Where is your heart? Is your family first? 
And there, because we can look at Scripture again, Matthew 15 says, hey, he's correcting the, he's talking to the Pharisees and go, hey, you failed to honor your mother and father as the Scripture says. We know your God says to honor your mother and father, so how can I honor and hate him? But he's talking about where your heart is, where your God is, what, what's the kingdom, right? And, you know, the Bible even says go as far as loving your enemies, but I'm supposed to hate my wife? How does that work? You know, you, you look at these things, and it, it seems at first glance of off, but we can sit there and look at Scripture and know this doesn't line up. But the simple fact is, if God isn't first in my life, then something's off. I can't say, okay, God, you're just a little part of my life. I'm going to have you in here to bless these things. Ultimately, it, it, he is it. And, and you can talk to men, and, and even me, I know I am incapable of loving my wife without loving Christ first, biblically. I'll fail. I can try. There's loving acts I can do, but ultimately it comes to nothing. And so when you look at this, and he says you need to hate those things, and, uh, you know, we're kind of a... Um, I don't know, I wanted to be nice, but I'm not going to be. Snowflake Christians in America. We are, right? You realize, okay, you have to forsake your family and this and even your own life. Here, that's not a problem. There's cultures where that's a big problem. You accept Christ, they're going to kick you out. They're not going to talk to your family. not going to have anything to do with you. Right now, this word is being taught, and somebody's going to make this decision that will cost them their whole family and possibly their life. And here, we're like, oh, that seems harsh. Well... That was a reality, and even for these folks would become a reality. I mean, you look at what happened after and all the persecution they went through and how many of these people sitting in that group were martyred. And, and being willing to follow Christ regardless, to be his disciple. And, and the word disciple isn't, it's kind of a word that's kind of lost these days. It is that he's your teacher or you're his apprentice. And if there's a trade or you're in a trade of something, you go and you learn, you go work in a roofing, you will watch them, you walk alongside them. That's what these men did. They walked with Jesus. They were around him. They learned from his example. They learned from his teaching. They were paying attention, you know. And so to do, not just be saved, but God desires us to be disciples. So it isn't saying, hey, if you don't reject your whole family, you're not going to be saved. But God desires us to be disciples, and we'll see that again and again in his word, that a loving father wants the disciple, is going to train. You know, if, if, if we go out and we adopt somebody, they can say, yes, I'm adopted by them. That doesn't make them my son or a daughter. It's until there's an action. And the loving action isn't always, I spoiled them. It's discipline and training. That's how you truly love a child. And to think God would do any less with us when you accept him as your Lord and Savior. Yes, you're my Lord. You're my heavenly Father. And then expect him to abuse you, mistreat you, and not treat you like a child is foolish. So it's not a salvation issue, but it is an issue going, hey, if he's my father, then there he's going to be faithful. And you should fear him in that sense because he's lovingly going to disciple you and lovingly going to discipline you in those things. And so we look at this and, you know, God, God desires us to rule our house as well, to love our mother and father and those things. But it's all based on how he's called us to do it. It's him first. And not even our own lives, our own desires, our own lists of wants are all need to be in submission to him. And as he turns around for this crowd who's been following him, that's going to be tested very soon. Even his own 12 disciples 
who swore there's no way I would go to the grave for you end up tested in this area. And we know about Peter denying him three times and God restoring it. And so you see this, and um, it's kind of interesting when we look at it. I, I saw a thing on Facebook, and it was kind of disturbing. You know, in Philadelphia, there's a mosque, and there's these young kids singing a song about how they're going to die for Allah and the infidels against Allah. And yeah, an American in a mosque, you know, they're willing to lay their lives down singing about it. You know, and you go, wow, and you, it's just a different mindset. And I think, you know, it, it's hard for us because, you know, you think of, the persecution people go through and the situations they get in. And, and you would think it would be harder the more persecution. But yet I've met pastors from China, and you know what they pray for? That the United States church would go through persecution because it would grow us. Our faith would be solid because the, all the blessings we have, all the abundance we have is actually probably the biggest strain in our relationship in this way and being fully sold out. You know, if you look around at this landscape and go, man, I could be dead in a week, like it or not, it's a lot easier to die for something and to stand for something compared to, wait a minute, I got my retirement, my securities, and all these other things we get distracted with. And so he says, you have to hate your life. And so this is a real heart check to sit there and go, okay, is it about me or is it about God? Is it about what he's doing in my life? Did I sign up because this sounded good and I'm just here so I can get something out of it? You know, is it all about me or am I about God? What do you want? What's your will? What's your plan? And not just, you know, what's your plan for 10% of my life, you know? I'm going to give 10% of my tithe. I'm going to 10%. No, God wants your whole life. 10% is an Old Testament thing. Throw that. God wants you to 100% of you all the time even your thought life. And so we sit here and this is, you know, boom, it, it's a challenge. It's just a challenge to me that comes out and it's just like right there. And you would think he's, this next sentence, he doesn't like bring it down a notch. Okay, hate your own life. Okay, let's just bring that down a notch. He actually ratchets it up. He makes the, you know, so if you were feeling convicted, I'm sorry, it's going to get worse. And verse 27, it says, and whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot, cannot be my disciple. Now, the cross in this thing, you know, we get the little Christian crosses and stuff. We've, you know, sanitized it, changed it. But if you don't bear your cross, the only time you were bearing a cross was on your way to your death. And if you look at that scene, you know, I, I was trying to think, is there any comparison we even have of this? I mean, there's horrible things happening, Holocaust and whatnot, but, you know, movie-wise, okay, you have to dig your own grave. You know, somebody's going to kill you, and you're going to dig your own grave. And I've always thought, would I dig it or just shoot me now? I mean, you're going to kill me anyways, you know? Or is your chances you just keep digging the grave? Hopefully you can maybe throw some dirt in his eye and run away. I mean, what do you do at this point? Rome has got you. You've been at a decree that you're going to be put to death. The men around you, if they do not fulfill that, it's going to cost them their life. You're stripped naked, paraded through public, beaten, mocked. It's clear where you're going, and there's only one destination ahead is death. And Jesus here brings that out. You talk about ratcheting it up and shocking, going, hey, 
if you do not bear his cross, and he's not talking about the cross of Christ, he's talking about your own cross, what God's called you to do. You know, and you've seen this misquoted so many times. I feel sorry for mother-in-laws. Oh, she's, you know, my mother-in-law, that's the, my cross to bear. Or, you know, this coworker, well, that's just the cross God gave me to bear, or an illness. Or, no, not even close. It's not what it's talking about, and don't misquote that. You know, he even talked about, um, back when we were looking in Luke 20, uh, 9, 23, he says, you know, he, he said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. It's denying your will, it's taking it up, and with the thought of, hey, this is what it's going, and, and it's being, I'm committed to being led wherever it goes, wherever he's going to take me. I am not in control. It is not my choice. And the end result, I have no say over. And, and when you slow down and you look at that and you go, okay, that's, that's insane. Well, that's what he did for us. He allowed it. Number two, Rome isn't leading us. Christ is. It isn't somebody looking for our destruction. It is somebody who desires to bless us. You know, it's kind of interesting. You've seen, and, and um, I mean, it's been a while since I've seen it, but I, I remember when a kid, you know, every once in a while, you'd see some guy walking with a cross. You ever got it, like, literally walking with a cross? You know, I'm sure it's not, you know, it has a little wheel on the back or whatever, you know. There used to be a guy that walked around, like, you know, good, good way to start a conversation. I mean, obviously, if you're walking around carrying a cross. But what has God called you to do in that sense? And, and what he's doing is calling, what are you calling to die? Are you... You know, you get back to hypocrisy and what other people think and all the different aspects of this. Do you care about what's around you? Do you care about what people think about you? You're, you know, you're going to be paraded out and people aren't going to like you. And it's, do you know, it's giving everything up. At that point, you have no self-worth. You know, if you survived the cross, if somehow you got there and you were saved... You talk about having issues mentally after that, just from going that direction. You know, so you look at these things and what God is saying and what God is calling us to. And yet it seems, it seems I don't get, you know, it, it amazes me when you slow down and you look at it on a world scale and you hear of these Christians being martyred in different places and everything else, and again, some of it they have no control over, but other things, the reason they'll stand for their faith. And you go, man, why does it seem when there's no persecution to stand so hard and against it? And I was trying to think about this, and, and I like math a little more than you know, as far as subjects in school, science and math. And so I was kind of thinking about this from a math aspect. What if we looked at this from a math aspect? And that's what it kind of asked us to do in verse 28. Verse 28 says, For which of you intending to build a house doesn't sit down and first count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, least after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all those who or see it began to mock him, saying, this man began to build, and one is unable to finish. So count the cost. And so if we were to sit down and you were to look at your life and go, okay, what is the cost? What am I going to have to give up to serve Christ? I'm going to have to lay my life down, my family, those things are important. I'm going to have to totally trust him with that. 
And whatever he chooses to give and bless with me, I'm going to have to trust whatever he gives back. So if you were to start, okay, this is a positive thing that can happen from following Christ. Well, that would be a negative thing. And then this was a positive thing. The problem is, as a non-believer, you get to an equal point. And that equal point is the day you die, right? This plus this plus this plus this. Did I have a good life? What did it add up to? It equals, and I'm dead. As a believer, we don't get to an equal sign. We get to a cross, which looks like a plus sign. So at the end of your life as a believer, when you die, it's a plus sign because you have the cross, which means now you have this plus this plus this. Oh, yeah, those things that were going to take you out and those minuses God removed or things you thought you're going to reject and hate. Oh, those you might consider minuses, even though they're probably not. But then as you get to the end of your life and you pass away, there's this plus sign. And after that, there is no more negative signs for the rest of eternity. So how's that equation looking in light of heaven? Wait, wait, I might miss out on what? You got all of eternity with all this blessing coming because of what Christ did that he counted the cost before he went to the cross. And he said, hey, you're worth it. You're of value. I will go to the cross unjustly for you, for your sin. And you see that, and you see that relationship. And so when you sit down and do that math equation, you look at what's ahead, add up the cost. I encourage you to add up the cost. It is very encouraging when you realize what's to come. Let's slow down and look at the picture. Oh, we could be raptured soon. And then there's no more crying, there's no more tears, there's no negative, and there's a heaven forever that we couldn't even comprehend that's going to be awesome. Ooh, I'm not scared about it all. Come, Lord, soon. Unlike when I was a child, I'm getting older, my body's squeaking more, I'm for it. You know, I, I, I was talking um, this week with uh, Judith, and I, I just love talking to people. You know, and she goes, yeah, this and this and this, just don't pray, I get better, because I'm good to go. Anytime God wants me, I'm good. I'm, you know, she, oh, I, she sees the other side of the, hey, after death, it's just all positive, you know, just, you can pray for me, don't don't pray, I end up living longer. I mean, I, when he wants me, take me. You know, and it's just, it's that heart and that, that perspective on life we need to have. And we need to be focused on Jesus. Our heart, number one, to give up all. That, to look at the things of this world and go, there is no value. And then to be focused on what's ahead, the goal. When you set out to build a house, you have a plan, you have a goal, you draw out, you plan ahead of time, or you should plan ahead of time. You know, even if it's an IKEA piece of furniture, you should have a plan. And you sit down and you plan out for those things. And when you have a plan and you have a focus, there's a comfort to that. There's a peace about that. And many times we can get through our lives and it's not that we didn't set out with a plan, not that our heart wasn't there, but we've gotten so distracted with the comforts of this world and the things around us and the distractions that we just, we, we stopped the building project. We're, we got the halfway up, we started working, God started working with someone, we stopped and said, well, you know, I don't know if we need this. Now, a tower was to either store grain, okay? This guy started building a tower. It was either to store grain or for protection, to look out for danger coming in. If you didn't finish your tower to store your grain, then you would have nowhere to store your grain. You wouldn't survive winter. If you didn't have a tower to defend, then that's a problem too. Both examples would be bad. And what happens is in our lives, especially in the United States, because things are so comfortable, we stop taking the seriousness of the work and the intent 
on what God's doing and we get our focus off. We're so easily distracted. So easily distracted. And we need to be intentional about what we're doing and count the cost. What are we building? And what we're building sometimes can be overwhelming. And that, that's, you know, as, as serving in ministry and those things, there's definitely been some blessings earlier this week, God giving clarity through some stuff. But you can sit down and you look at the work God has called you to or the ministry God's called you to and you go, whoa, okay, I'm going to start at it. And then you look up and you go, wow, there's still a lot more. And you can get overwhelmed and go, wait, well, what you forget the work is not what's laid out in front of you. It's not ministry. It's not the needs of the ministry. It's what he's doing in your heart and your life. And we can get so focused on what doesn't get done and not see what God is doing and has done. You know, as we sit back and we look at Calvary Chapel Manteca and the ministry here, there's a lot of things that need to be finished. Two, over two years ago, we started fixing the building up. I still see the trim around that door, not back in. You guys don't see it. I do. You know, there's those things I see, a list of stuff to be done. Those things do not matter compared to what he's doing and how he's working in lives. And we sit back and we look at the ministry and go, God, how, has you, how, how have you called us as a ministry? How have you commissioned us? What is the fruit of the work you're doing? Does that line up with how you've called us? Are we fulfilling how you've called us? And I sit back and go, yeah. And I didn't want to be cheesy and stuff, but the truth is we're a family. We're a family. We get together for Thanksgiving, on Thanksgiving, to have Thanksgiving together and outreach to those who are lost. We're a family. Half, not half you. Some of you have lived in my house. We're a family. It's just the way it is. We're not a big fellowship. We're not about, we're about, yeah, we're a family of believers. And we're, you know, that's it. It's who we are. We're, we're here, you know, and we need to be intentional about our relationship, living for Christ. And we need to be intentional about sharing the gospel and what we're about. You're not going to, you know, Simple fact, if you come here and you're not intentional and serious about your relationship with God, I'm going to drive you nuts. You're going to be convicted. The Holy Spirit's going to be convicted because that's not how he's called us. We're not a show. We're not a performance. We're not a, you got your church, I'll list that off your mark. That's not it here. Sorry. It's not what he's called us to. That's not what he's doing. And if you're here in that situation, pray and ask God to change your heart and Pray you hang out and, and that God just gets a hold of you and says, hey, there's more to life than whatever you're living for. That you'd be willing to die for it. And so you can get overwhelmed by the work of what's going on, but Philippians 1.6 says, be confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ. What is God doing? Is he working? If he's called you and he's directing you and there's a work there, He's going to be faithful to complete it. And what his goal of completion is is probably nothing what you're thinking it is. Nothing. We think, well, it's got to be this or that. And we start to take the work of God and try to put it in, in a value system of men and going, well, it depends on, you know, how many people are in the church or this or that. No, it's not what God's doing. God's doing in relationships and the people around us and working lives changed and, and in your heart. You ever serve in a ministry go, man, I don't see any fruit of that. And God's going, no, I see all the fruit I did in you. Look, you learned faithfulness, you learned this, you learned this. You know, all the great things he's taught us. And so when you sit down and you look at your life and maybe you prayed, accepted, and began a relationship with God, but how is he calling you? How does he want to disciple you? What is he, what is he trying to teach you? What is he training you for? You might be at a foundation. You might be building walls. You might be stopped somewhere along the way. How has God called you? What 
commission has he given you? We know the scripture says, you know, go, go, and, you know, go and make disciples of all the world. That's very broad. How do you do it? How specifically has he called you? He's put you in a place. He's put you in a job. He's put you in a situation. He's lined 90% of it up. Sometimes we just go, okay, God, how have you called me? And you go, huh, that's funny. That's why I got this job and not that job. That's why I'm here and not there. And, you know, it's pretty simple to see. Is there fruit of how God's used you? And you go, and I serve God in this way, man. There just seems to be fruit. There's a joy in serving in that way. To slow down and reflect because the reality, which we're going to see in verse 31, even more than building a tower that could be for defense, in verse 31 it says, or that, or a king. Here he uses this other example. Or what king going in to make war against another king does not sit down and count the cost first, whether he is able with 10,000 men to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Or who else, while, he, uh, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegate and asks conditions for peace. Man, if you're going to war, you talk about serious, right? Building a house, okay, you don't build a house. You you know, might have some people mocking you and, you know, you don't finish a building project. Your wife might be on you for all those projects you have laying around your house because I have no experience with that at all. But um, for you other men, you know, no, you sit there and you go, wait. You sit and you look and you go, this is, this is serious. If you're a king and you make war with somebody and you go out and you're, you realize, wait, I'm not going to be able to... I'm not going to survive this. I, if I survive this, I might be, you know, like back in the day, they'd wipe everybody out and just keep you alive, and you'd be like the, you know, hey, look, this is a trophy. Drag you out from prison or whatever they want to do with you as a trophy. You know, you're going to, you could lose everything, including your life. This is, this is reality of it. And, and most of us these days, oh, you know, I don't, I don't see this danger, really. I see, do you see this danger? Look around. How many people go out and they look at their life and they do the math equation and go, you know what, yeah, I, I, you know, I want good kids and stuff. We'll go to church, but I'm not going to be serious about my walk with the Lord. And then their kids aren't serious about the walk with their Lord. And a couple years go by and they're totally wiped out and they've lost everything of any value they've had. You know, and you sit down and you do the math on it. Okay, how does this work, God? How, how do I go do ministry? I don't want to leave my family behind. I'm... I'm Parenting is a ministry. If you have children, you are in full-time ministry. And I guarantee you that is the most important thing in the world. You ask any pastor of any church, the only thing they do not, the most valuable person in their ministry, they would, they, it would be the biggest heartbreak for them to see fail and walk away from Christ is their own children. Take the time. To build that foundation, take the time to teach them and serve. And even then, you can have children go sideways. Don't want to have it. They have a free will. God is not going to force them. But at the same time, you can sit down and go, God, I, I can trust you. I've done everything I can to the best of my ability with your grace with these kids and trust it. And so consider the cost when you go out. Consider the value of these things. The reality of this, can you be saved and not a disciple? Yeah, you might lose everything in the process. You know, the Bible says what? The man who wishes to gain his life or desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses my life for his sake will find it. 
Matthew 16, 25. He's not joking. This wasn't a suggestive verse. And this is the way it is. If you desire, you cannot be my disciple. If not, A loving father is going to grow you in a relationship. He's going to disciple you. He's going to train you. He's going to be discipline you. The Bible even talks about that. He chastens a son he loves. A father will discipline you. If God is your father, there's going to be discipline. There's going to be direction. He's going to encourage you. He's going to convict you, convict you of things. And if that's not happening... You need to sit down and take a look at your relationship with God and go, is he my father? Or am I in total rebellion? Where am I at? And that's a personal level. We, and none of us in here have any way of knowing, but that's between you and God. Where is my heart? Does he convict me? Is he loving me? Is, am I his son? Am I his daughter? And we should have a healthy fear of God. If he is your loving father and he's going to discipline you, you should expect what? If I do something I shouldn't, I'm going to get disciplined, right? The fear of God. Your kids, you know, you talk to parents about how do we, we're supposed to fear God, the fear of the Lord, yes. And you have parents and your kids know the fear of God or the fear of dad or the fear of mom. I'm not going to do this because they're going to be faithful and lovingly discipline me. There is a healthy fear, but it's also not forced. It's not forced. You don't have to obey God. Do you know that? You know, you face people, it's amazing. You talk about uh, marriage or whatever circumstances, and, you know, it's like, well, I hate her. She hates me, this and this and this and this. And we hate each other and, you know, and all these things. But, you know, we're Christian. We can't get divorced. So let me get this right. You're going to sin by not forgiving each other. You're going to sin by not doing this. You're going to sin by not doing this. And you're going to sin by not doing this and not doing this and not doing this. And you're worried about sinning by getting divorced. Okay. How about you just stop sinning and forgiving each other? Even if you get divorced, guess what you still got to do? You still got to forgive the other person. You know, you sit down and you look at it and go, okay, he's not going to force us to obey. But if you sit down and you look at the math and those things in your life and you go, what is it worth losing? What is worth losing? Are you going to trust everything to God? I'm going to trust my family to God. I'm going to trust my wife to God. I'm going to trust my kids to God. I'm going to trust every situation to God and how he's going to lead me. I'm going to trust he's going to guide me in ministry, that he's going to you know, give that heart to my wife and to my children so we can go serve together and we're not going to fear serving the Lord together. And we're, going to, we're just going to do it. I'm just going to show my kids an example of what it means to be sold out for Christ instead of a hypocrite. And how many people go, oh, yeah, my, my dad said this. He went to church. He did this and this and this. But when he got home, sadly, verse 33 says, So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. All in the Greek is still all. And you slow down and you look at that and you go, gosh, man, God, that seems to be a lot to ask. And if anything, it's only a lot to ask. It's because we have a lot of blessings. But what else? What else? Tell me, 
who or anybody you would trust with all that you have. I wouldn't trust any of you with all that I have in this room. I trust God. Guess why I wouldn't trust any of you? Because I can't even trust me. And I know me. And so trust all that you have to God. Lay it aside. And, and you know, sometimes we need it. We get, we get lax in our walk or unintentional. And I think we just get occupied. We're not, we're no longer planning. We sit down and we look at our life and, okay, what's the plan for next week? Well, somebody's birthday's coming up. This is coming up. We need to get this done. Oh, well, the weeds are going to come in the grass. We've got to weed the grass. We've got to do this. The house needs to be painted. And we haven't sat down and go, okay, those things are important, but nothing as important as, God, what are you doing? What's the foundation? What's the cost? How do we move forward? How do we serve you? What do you want to do in my heart, my life, and my family? As a man, do you sit down and go, hey, Lord, how are you leading us? How have you called us as a family? Honey, kids, this is how God's going to call us. We're going to go out. We're going to serve. We're going to be faithful to teach the word, and we're going to sacrifice because God's called us to serve, and not just serve, but serve in this area. You know, some of you guys in here, and I know some of you men are like me. I drive Heidi nuts. She likes to plan things. Me, I like to dream, so we talk about all the things we could do, and she's trying to plan all the things I can do. You know, and, and I drive her nuts because she's sitting here thinking when I start talking, well, maybe one day we could do this. She's trying to figure out how to make it happen. I'm just talking out loud. I'm dreaming about stuff. It's not that, that I'm actually planning to do it. We'd be on Mars by now a couple times or something. I don't know. In a dream, well, what if we did this? Or what if we did this? And what happens is I can get that way because, oh, I want to do things. I want to do things. And there's a zeal. But I haven't slowed down and go, God, have, have you called me? You think about how many decisions you make in your life. If you know clearly how God has called you, how he's commissioned you, doesn't it make most of those decisions a heck of a lot easier? Somebody comes up and says, hey, can you do this? And you go, no, I'm not called to do that. Talk to God about it. It's my job. I'm called to do this. And not, you know, not to say you're not gracious to help out in areas, but really it can help. You know, you look at ministry, you look at how many different ways you can go. There's a huge piece knowing, no, this is what God's called me for. He's going to gift me for it. He's going to equip me for it. He's going to send me in it. He's going to grow me through it. He's going to be faithful to disciple me and prepare me for it. There's a huge piece in that. And as, you know, my wife sitting there going insane, going, what's going on? I just need some stability. And, oh, we're going to seek God and do whatever he says. Okay, what is that? Whatever he says. Well, he doesn't change his mind often. He's going a direction. Pray, seek, ask your calling. See how God's calling you. And even if you've been called and you had a heart and you go, well, man, we've, we've, we've gotten too far off. Let's look at verse 34. It says, salt is good, but if it is not salty, has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? If it is neither fit for the land nor fit for the dunghill, it's It's useless. Men throw it out, and he who hears, let him hear. If, if, you know, we're considered, in the Bible, we're compared to salt and light. When you look at Job, you look at uh, the Old Testament there, the only thing preventing Sodom from being wiped out the, off the map was what? If you find a couple righteous, one righteous, two righteous, three righteous, you know, and he does all the singing, God isn't wiping that place off the face of the earth. Why? Because there's a couple. And then the angel comes and says, what? 
I can't wipe this place out until you leave. You gotta go. It's a preservative. You know, and salt in our culture, you know, it, it's amazing. I mean, I would love to take some of you. Know, there's certain things you'd love to do with a time machine, right? Just because it'd be cool to just wow people. Could you imagine somebody coming from Roman times into a restaurant and there's salt on every table and a little, I mean, this was as valuable as cereal. This was part of their, you took over thing, you were paid, okay? We get our word salt, uh, salary comes from the word salt. Do you know that? When we got salary, that's based off the word salt. You got paid in your salt. You know, you're worth your weight in salt, you know? It was a preservative, not just for flavoring food. A soldier would use it to keep himself and, and to rub it in a wound. It would hurt but it would kill the disease, keep them alive. If salt didn't have, if it wasn't salty, if it didn't do what it was designed to do, any of you guys be carrying around salt? We wouldn't make it little salt shakers for sand on the table. Oh, well, let's add some crunchy sand on your, you know? Just, it would be useless. And, and that, that's a warning here. Pay attention. If you lose your salt, and if, if you're not, you're of no value. Nothing else matters. And it, it, you know, forget about losing everything, but even your self-worth has no value. It has no effect on this world. It's dunghill. Do you need a translation? I think we're good. You sit down and you look at that and you go, okay, what has God called us to? Are we intentional? Are we seeking? Or are we just, are we still salty? Are we affecting those around us? Do people see it? Are we a preservative? And it can be heavy. And again, this is where you want to look at the chapters in a whole. And so we're going to look a little briefly at next week here. You know, verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 1 says, and all... The tax collectors and the sinners draw near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes complain, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he spoke this parable to him, saying, and then he goes into the lost coin, the lost sheep, how he's willing to go after the one, leave the many, and go seek after the one. And then after that, it gets in the parable of the lost son, and how there's rejoicing over one son that has been lost who returns. So you can sit here and go, man, I've lost my salt. I've been done. I'm, I'm you know, come on. My calling, I'm, gonna, I'm not young anymore. I'm not this anymore. I'm not, you know, I'm at the last. Uh, you know, this, I've failed too many areas. My kids are adults now. Well, you know, the age 18 doesn't exist in the Bible, right? It doesn't say, oh, stop training your kids when they turn 18. You still can have effect. If you're that lost child, God has a heart for you. And he's willing to leave the all for the one. There isn't a point where you can sit down and go, wait a minute, this calling's over on my life or done. Um, one of this fellowship's greatest examples of that was Pat Carter. Pat Carter, hard time breathing, praying for everybody by name. If you would say, okay, what's the thing you need to do to be able to have a prayer life where you just pray, 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 pray? I would say good lungs. He didn't have them. And even as we went over to Hope Shelter and him being the salty sailor kind of background he was, and all the areas with his grandkids and everything else, to hear his granddaughter get up here and share that we know who Jesus is. We know 
because of my grandpa and his influence on us. There was no doubt for anybody in this room that they did not know the gospel and who their savior was, even though his adult kids had strayed. And then to see Pat go over with me and share at Hope Ministries with a young man who's 12 who prays to accept Christ and just the joy. Nobody knew how, we didn't know how long he had left, but man, he was going to run all the way to the end. He was going to fulfill whatever calling he had. He could pray for everybody in here's name and their children's name and their grandchildren's name. And he didn't even get on Facebook that much. I mean, I just, it wasn't, you know, there's those examples. There isn't a point where your calling's done. Our God is loving enough to where I'm certain when he is done with what he's commissioned you to do, he's going to take you home. He's selfish, he's jealous, he's going to just take you home. And I've told him, I'm fine with it. I do not need a reason to leave this world. I do not need a method to leave this world. You can just take me without the method that's necessary. I don't need a heart attack or a bus or anything else. Just take me. I'm good. You know, I know of one man who, um, who was preaching in a seminary, who was an older pastor, who at the end of his sermon fell forward on the pulpit and passed away. I'm good with that. Just, right? You think anybody was sleeping after that? I was like, wait, what did he say? This was the last thing this great teacher ever shared with us, and then he died on the pulpit, you know? I wonder how long they sat there. Like, is it over? Is he praying? I just... I, anyways, my mind goes other places. But when we look at the gospel, and we look at the word of God, and we look at this charge in us, and what it the requirements, what he desires us to be as his disciple, we need to count the cost and look at the things in our life. And I know God's moving. I know God's desiring to work through this fellowship. I know he has a calling on this fellowship and the people in the fellowship. I am convinced 100% that he has put a whole body of believers here, that we lack nothing for what we are called to do. And so if you're called... I'm going to be asking you guys in a couple weeks, again and again, how is God calling you? Tell me, how is God calling you? What has he laid on your heart? What is your, your vision, your mission, whatever you want to call it? We can add some good buzzwords in there, mission, vision, or you know, whatever. How is God calling you? What has he told you to do? What has he laid in your heart? Well, I kind of feel like I have a heart to that. Good, let's sit down and talk about it. What does that actually look like? Practically, what does that look like? What are the actions you would do in your life to fulfill it? Well, I'd like to do this and this, but this is in the way. Okay, is that something we need to sacrifice and get rid of? You know, and that's been a big encouragement in my life. There's opportunities I've had for things and I've prayed about, and I just go, I don't know how to have the time to do that. One of them's being coming a chaplain for the Manteca School District and being able to serve in the elementary school over there. So I'm taking that process. I don't know how I'm going to have time during the week to do it, but. God's called me to do it, so I'm going to do it. The time and the money and all that, that's up to him. It's not up to me. I'm just supposed to obey, right? Praise the Lord. So if the worship team would come forward this morning, we're going to take offering. And not just this time, but just this week, sit down and look at your life. Take stock. Take account. What's going on? How am I spending my time? What's going on? Where am I headed? Where's God placed me? You know, you can think about, you sit down and you think, well, why did he place me in this job in this place at this time? Where am I at? 